If I were to begin our time by saying that God is sovereign, a number of things may come to your head. One, one thing that may come to your head is you may think of some sort of sovereign ruler, you know, with all their royal robes on, very pompous, you know, that may be the image that comes into your mind and you think of God that way. Another thing that may happen, especially if you've spent much time around church, which I know some of you have, is you may think, oh boy, here we go. Here's that tiresome debate that we're going to get into. You know that one that's caused confusion for centuries inside of the church about the sovereignty of God versus the free will of men? You know, is that, is that what we're doing here today? We are going to look at this truth that God is sovereign And we're going to look at a number of different thoughts about this, including some of the things I just mentioned there. But rather than this being some sort of lecture where I stand up here and give you all the thoughts and points on God's sovereignty, I'd like for us to look at this through the lens of two stories of two very different kings, okay? So we're going to look at two stories of two different kings, but before we do that even, We're going to work on a definition together of what this word sovereign actually means. And so if we were to look in a dictionary like the Cambridge Dictionary and say, what does this word sovereign means? It means having the highest power or being completely independent. Okay, highest power, completely independent. Now, if you think about those words, that's a a secular definition. We need to now say, okay, does that line up with what God tells us about his sovereignty? When God says that he is sovereign, does that mean that he is the highest in power and completely independent? And I would actually say, yes, actually it does. But rather than just taking my word for it, let's see if that's true by turning together to the story of our first king, which is found in Daniel chapter 4. So this is my part where I invite you, if you'd like, to grab a Bible to read along with me. And I'm going to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. As you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of background. We're going to look at a story of one of the most powerful men in all of history. And that's not an exaggeration to say that. This is a man called King Nebuchadnezzar. Now, that's quite a name, 13 letters to it. You wouldn't want to put that on an email address, would you? Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, It's, it's quite a name. And this guy is very grand in his own eyes. We get the idea that he's a very arrogant person. And maybe he has a good reason for that. He's the king of the Babylonian Empire at its height. And so in this moment of history we're looking into, he is easily the most powerful man on the planet. And he has gotten, he's obtained his power by tearing down other kingdoms. And one of those kingdoms that he's torn down is the kingdom of Judah and its capital, Jerusalem, God's holy and special city. And he's carried off different people to Babylon in exile. One of those people is a guy named Daniel who wrote this particular book. And if you've read Daniel 1 through 3, which leads up to this, you'll know that there have been moments where King Nebuchadnezzar has already been exposed to the one true God the Most High God, who rules in heaven, the God of Daniel and his friends. But there's a problem in that Nebuchadnezzar is full of himself, and so he will not acknowledge this God as being sovereign, in control, over and above him. 
And so that's kind of the background going into this. Now, it may not sound like that when we read this first few verses because these are actually written after the story where we're about to read about, okay? So let's just read verse 1 through 3 and see what King Nebuchadnezzar is saying here. And so he's the one addressing us here, and he says this, King Nebuchadnezzar, to all peoples, nations, and languages, I'm reading from verse 4 of chapter 1, that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. It seemed good to me to show the signs and wonders that the Most High God has done for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now you read that and you're like, that doesn't sound like a very arrogant person to me. Well, he's writing this after he's gone through a humbling process, which we're about to talk about. So what happens in this story? If you read on through the next verses, which by the way, it's a fascinating and strange read. But if you read what happens next, Nebuchadnezzar has had a bad dream. There's this dream where there's this giant tree that's chopped down in its prime. And he's worried about this dream. And so he looks for an interpretation on this dream. And nobody, of course, can tell him what it means except for finally his friend Daniel shows up. And Daniel understands what this dream means because God reveals it to him. And Daniel tells him, hey, this tree represents you. You're going to be cut down in your prime unless you change your ways. And so I'd strongly suggest that you humble yourself before God. But, but king, the king doesn't do that. He doesn't humble himself as we read in verse 28. Let me read with you, actually. Let's read this together. It says this, All this, as in the things Daniel had predicted through the dream, came upon King Nebuchadnezzar at the end of 12 months. So it's a year later. He was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered, I guess himself, and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built with my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. This is scary stuff. It says, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox. And seven periods of time shall pass over you until, listen to this, you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. It goes on and tells us next that exactly what is said happens. That Nebuchadnezzar literally goes out of his mind. And he, he goes and he acts like an animal for the next years of his life until finally he looks up and acknowledges that there is a power greater than him. And in that moment, God restores his sanity and restores even the kingdom to him very graciously. And it's a bizarre, strange story. It just is. But that phrase I pointed out to you in verse 32 is very important. In fact, that phrase where it talks about the Most High is repeated three times. We skipped over the earlier versions of it. So you find it in verse 17, in verse 25, and in verse 32. 
And I just remind you that God doesn't waste his word. When, when he repeats something, it's because it's important. And the repeated phrase is this. The Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. What's this saying? It's saying the Most High, God in heaven, rules everything, even our kingdoms here on the earth. And he is the one who gives it to whom he will. So what's this verse talking about? What's this repeated phrase talking about? Exactly what our topic is for today. In fact, if you read the NIV translation of this particular passage, it says the Lord God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to whom he chooses. Here we have one of the most powerful and influential independent rulers of all history being taught a great, hard, and painful truth. And that is that God is truly sovereign, even above the most powerful man in the world. Our earlier definition that we talked about, what what does this word sovereign mean? We said that it means to be completely independent and supreme in power. And I think that definition actually proves to be good even by this story, because even this, the most powerful man in the world, is not truly independent and is not truly supreme in power. Only God is that. Only God is truly sovereign. And so when we say that God is sovereign, it means that God is over all things. He's over all time. He's over all space. We could say it like this. Nothing happens in one molecule of the universe that God hasn't seen or allowed. Now just think about that for a moment. That's a very profound statement. There's a lot of weight to that. And it's a good thought that that nothing hasn't happened that God hasn't seen or allowed, at least for a while. We can draw some comfort for that from that, but at the same time, the thought can also make us uncomfortable. Because if God is over all things, if He is sovereign over the kingdoms of man, and if He's sovereign over our lives, and maybe, yes, even over our choices... Are we simply puppets being pulled along by divine strings? Are we some kind of robot, you and I, that are predestined on some sort of path? Are we pre-programmed for what we're doing and the decisions that we're making? Do you and I really have freedom to make choices? If you go to Lamentations number, chapter 3, verse 37 and 38, it says this, Whom, Who has spoken... And it has come to pass unless the Lord commanded it. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Everything comes from God is what that's saying. Or another verse, Proverbs 16.33, The lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. What that is saying is we can roll dice, but how the dice even fall is up to God. He's the one choosing that. And so we hear all that and we're like, wow, okay, that's a little discomforting. And we follow the train of thought and we think, well, if God is in control of everything, how can I then be held responsible if he's behind the scenes orchestrating all things? And yet the Bible clearly teaches that we are responsible. Let me take you to a couple more Bible verses. If you go to Romans 14, 12, it says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Or Jesus' words in Matthew 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man, that's him, Jesus, is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, 
and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. So there's this rub that happens because we look at one truth in Scripture that says that God's in control of all things, and then we look at another truth that says, hey, we're responsible. We have choices that we make, and we're responsible for those choices. And we want to line up these two concepts against each other and say, well, what is it? Does God predestine all things? Or do we have choice, and is there responsibility for those choices? And this tension that we feel, even in this moment, is not a new tension. To oversimplify church history, 500 years ago, the church went through this massive split. We call it the Reformation, where Roman Catholic thought was split off from with the the protesting church, the Protestant church. But we don't often think about the fact that even inside that Protestant church, there were two main camps of thought, and it centered around this theology, this thought about God. One side really kind of leaned heavily, heavily on this thought of predestination, the sovereignty of God. The other really was on free will and choice, one we call Calvinism, and that's just because one of the main proponents of that thought was a guy named John Calvin. The other is called Arminianism. And again, this guy, Jacobus Arminius, was the main theologian behind that thought. There are typically five points of debate around this conversation, and they all center around God's sovereignty and and free will. For 500 years, is what I'm saying, people who love God have fallen on both sides of this debate. There are people in church history that I look up to, heroes of the faith that fall on both sides of this debate. I have friends that are alive now who fall on both sides of this debate. I have no intention to sit here and list out the five points and talk about their nuances. But what I do want to do is point you to something that I find very helpful. In 1858... A sermon was preached by a guy named Charles Spurgeon. And what I find in, in this sermon is something that I find hugely helpful in this whole conversation. And so I want to simply read for you his words. He says this, that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. So what he's saying here is few people can see both of these things together. But then goes on and says this, they are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. Two truths cannot be contradictory to each other. If then, this is exactly what we've been talking about, by the way, if then I find in one place that everything is foreordained, as in I look in the Bible and it teaches that things are predestined, that is true. And if I find in another place that man is responsible for all his actions, that is true. And it is my folly that leads me to imagine that the two truths can ever contradict each other. He goes on and says this, These two truths are two lines that are so nearly parallel that the mind that shall pursue them the furthest will never discover that they converge but they do converge and they meet somewhere in eternity close to the throne of God where all truth does spring from. 
I find that really helpful because here's this guy, a very intelligent man, who has thought very deeply about these things. And he says, hey, guys, we we've got to stop pitting these things against each other. Both are taught in Scripture. Both are true. Sometime after Spurgeon, another pastor was around in the 1900s, a guy named A.W. Tozer. And he had an analogy about this whole thought that I find helpful. It's not a perfect analogy, but it is somewhat helpful. And he spoke about this whole thought of predestination and responsibility, the sovereignty of God, by saying, think about a cruise ship that's leaving from New York and headed to the United Kingdom. It's leaving from one port and going to the other port. And the ship is set in its course, just like God has set the course of even our lives. We leave from one place, birth, and we arrive at one place, our death. And he went on to explain that on that cruise ship, the people on board are not locked in place. They actually have freedom to move about even though the ship's course is set. And he said that's a little bit like the freedom that God has given us, the limited freedom that we have aboard, the life that we have. We have freedom and responsibility that God has graciously given us. As I think about these analogies or the words of Spurgeon, I realize that even these things struggle to capture what we're talking about here because it is a mystery like a lot of what we've been talking about these last few weeks. And we see more of the mystery actually coming out of God's sovereignty in the story of the second king that I promised you. Several hundred years after Nebuchadnezzar and his empire, after they were completely gone, there was another king. And this king was very different. He wasn't wealthy. He wasn't known well during his time on earth. He was not born into nobility. In fact, he was born into an animal shelter. I speak, of course, of Jesus. Jesus, unlike Nebuchadnezzar, was a humble king. And rather than God needing to humble him, he was already humbled. God needed to raise him up and exalt him to become the king of kings. He came and he lived a sinless life. And he proved by miracles that he was who he claimed to be. He, he claimed to be God. But the people he came to love and to lead killed him. He rose from the dead, proving once again that he was God. But through that death, he made a way for us to have our many transgressions, our sins, our shortcomings forgiven. And after his resurrection, he returned to heaven. But one thing we need to know is that before leaving, he sent those who accepted this forgiveness, his disciples, to go and to spread the word about who he was and what he had done. And what's interesting is we have a story that captures the moment where the disciples first started to spread this message in the same city where Jesus had been killed. And so I want to read for you a little bit of this because, again, we see the mystery of predestination and free will coming out in this story. I'm going to turn to Acts chapter 2 if you want to turn there with me. Acts chapter 2. There's this moment 
where these followers of Jesus are waiting and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit descends and the city is thrown into chaos. And everybody kind of comes together wondering what's going on. And, and Peter, one of Jesus' followers, stands up. And I'm going to read for you some of the words that he says. Listen to what he says in verse 22 of Acts 2. He says this. They're there, they're confused, they're wondering what's going on. He says this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. As we read this, do you hear both predestination and responsibility in these words. Look at verse 23 in particular. It says, yeah, you guys, you delivered this Jesus over to be killed by what? The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus just didn't happen to die in Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. God had planned that from before time. But at the same time, we see responsibility coming out. Because right after it says that, it says, you crucified and killed. The responsibility is on these people that Peter is addressing. They're both undeniable here. So is God in control of all things, even the murder of his son in Jerusalem? And the answer is emphatically yes. And at the same time, the question is, do we have freedom to make choices? And are we responsible for the choices we make? And the answer is also yes. And we can look at this mystery and say, well, that's just the mystery. I, I, I don't know what to do with that. But better than that, let's look at this as a worship-producing mystery. Because God, in His goodness, has made a way for us to not just not just deal with the responsibility that we have, but to actually be released from the responsibility, to be forgiven of our shortcomings. And we see that actually coming out in this story. The people responsible for the murder of Jesus are offered forgiveness. And this is the same forgiveness that you and I are offered. Listen to what happens if we read on in verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. I smile as I read these verses because, again, you read these verses and you hear the tension just in these few verses. Because in response, Peter says, choose to repent. Soften your heart. Turn to God. And yet at the same time, you read that last verse I read, 
which I believe is verse 39. And it talks about here, it says, For this promise is for everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. We can only soften and and repent and turn to God unless if God has called us to himself. And so the question that I ask right in this moment is, is God calling you to respond? Will Will you surrender in this moment to Jesus, the sovereign king? I'm not going to assume that all of us in this room know Jesus as our Lord and our Savior. So will you repent? Will you be baptized? Will you experience forgiveness and receive the Holy Spirit that Peter talked about? Seize the moment. Don't delay. If you have questions about what that means, come and talk to me after the service. I'd love to have that conversation. For those of you who have surrendered to King Jesus, I have another question for you. What practical difference does God's sovereignty make in our lives? As we start to reflect on all that we've said here, let's think about this. And I want you to think about this by way of another analogy. Imagine with me that there's this beautiful meal laid out on a table in front of three people. And as you watch this scene unfold, one of these people at the table pulls up their chair, looks at the food and decides, you know what, I'm not going to eat that food because it just looks a little too messy. I might get something on me. You know, it just seems messy. I'm not going to eat that. The second person at the table looks at the food and starts to nibble on it a little bit. But what you soon start to discover is that this second person is some sort of food critic. And as they start to nibble on the food and taste it, they're talking about all the nuances and specifics of it. And as you watch them, you start to wonder, do they even enjoy this food? I don't know. The third person sitting there simply eats and enjoys. They savor every single bite. They're enjoying the food as they ingest it. And as you think about that analogy, I want to ask you, which one of these positions describes you when it comes to the sovereignty of God? Do you look at this thought of that God is sovereign and you're like, I'm just going to abstain from that. It's too messy. I don't want to go there. I don't want to think about it. It's too much for me to figure out. Others of us treat this whole thought like we're food critics. We're like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm a three-point Calvinist. Or, and for some of you, like, I don't even know what that means. But that we, we, get all, we want to debate the finer points of this. My challenge to myself and to you is that we would not do either of those things, but we would be like the third person who enjoys the sovereignty of God. But what exactly does that mean, to enjoy the sovereignty of God? Well, let's go back to our definition from earlier. When we say that God is sovereign, that means that he is independent and supreme in power. That is true, but that is not a complete definition of God's sovereignty because what we missed saying and what we need to say is that not only is God independent and supreme in power, he is also working all things together for his good. I say that because the Bible tells us that. Romans 8. 28, many of you will know, but think about that in light of what we're saying here. 
And we know, this is Romans 8, 28, that for those who love God, all things. I love that it says, by the way, and we know. It doesn't say, and we hope. It doesn't say, and we think. It says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, that means that nothing has happened and nothing will happen in your life that God has not foreseen or intended as part of his perfect plan. That doesn't mean that it isn't painful. That doesn't mean that it's all easy, but it does mean that all things, for those of us who love him and trust him, are working together for good. And so for some of you, I ask you, let's think about what does it mean to practically enjoy God's sovereignty? Some of you may be anxious If that's you, think about God's sovereignty and find peace. Others of you may be struggling to find sleep. Find rest today in the sovereignty of God. Others of you may be feeling hurt. Find healing for your pain by trusting in God's perfect eternal plans, remembering that he is good, that he is just, and that he is working all things together for good. These are just a few quick examples. I could say more, but this is the moment where I need to be honest with you. Of any week recently that I would have found this sermon easy to prepare and to preach, this was not the week. I wish, that <laughs> I wish we'd done this earlier in our series of God Is. And the reason I tell you that is this week we had, and this is just a personal situation, but we had news coming out of Australia saying that it looks like we, our family, may not be able to visit until mid-next year. And that, that's hit us like a ton of bricks. I have a niece that's almost two years old that I haven't met. Both my parents are about to have their 70th birthdays and I may not be able to be there for that. And when we moved here, we kind of moved here thinking, okay, we'll be a long way away, but we'll be able to connect and go and see them. They'll be able to come and see us. And and so this has just been weighing on me this week. And so what I've been faced with is a question, and that is, and and I say this because I understand that some of you may be facing a different but similar tough question, and that is, do I really believe this? Like, I can stand up here and talk about this stuff, but practically, do I believe this to be true? That God is sovereign, that He has moved our family here for this time, for such a time as this. Church family, if I don't believe this, I'm lost. And so I'm not asking you to do something that I'm not praying for myself. And that is to completely trust that the independent and supreme God of all things is, and I want to say this with 100% assurance, working all things together for good, for his good, which is also our good. And so let's cling to, let's rest in this great truth that God is sovereign. I'm going to pray. God, I thank you that even though this is 
a mysterious and even sometimes uncomfortable thought that you are sovereign, it also does bring us great comfort, especially for those of us who know you and trust in you, because what it does mean is that you aren't just supreme in power and independent in thought. It also means that you are working all things together towards your perfect eternal plan, which is good. And so, God, many of us in this room need to cling to that today. There's things in our lives that are difficult. And so this thought that you are working for our good is is good for us to reflect on. We thank you that you are sovereign. And we submit today to your lordship and to your leading in our lives. God, give us wisdom to know how to even respond in these next few moments. Thank you. Amen.